Greetings, podcast listeners. I'm so grateful that you're joining us here today, whether it's your first listen or your 100th. This is The Word is Resistance, a podcast product of the faith branch of Showing Up for Racial Justice. Each week, one member of our illustrious podcasting crew of pastors, prophets, and lovers of the word explore what biblical sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, maybe even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, aka the times in which we're all living today. My name is Grace, my pronouns are she and her, and I identify as a multiracial Asian American queer woman, and I live on Lenny Lenape land, also known as Philadelphia. This podcast is generally geared towards white folks, recognizing that white people in particular have a specific responsibility to committing themselves to dismantling white supremacy. And of course, in fact, we all have a role in resisting systemic injustice that we benefit from. The live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement that you heard moments ago, and will hear throughout the podcast, is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. So I've been reading through a book called Womanist Midrash by Reverend Will Gaffney with some friends over the last couple weeks. The book is a commentary on the named and unnamed women in the Hebrew Bible from the perspective of Gaffney, a black woman. As you probably know, there are a lot of difficult texts in the Bible to deal with from a woman's perspective, much less from a black woman's perspective with an eye towards the enslaved, the marginalized, and the unnamed. Drawing on the image of Jacob wrestling the angel, Gaffney writes that a similar wrestling must happen between the reader, the text, and the text's context in our world. We wrestle with it because it has been received as scripture, she says. Our wrestling should not be taken to mean that we affirm a text that does not affirm us. In a pause in our conversation about the first few chapters, a friend in our group named Katiri spoke into our circle. What if we understand the text as an elder, she said. What if we interact with it as if it were an elder in our community? One that we wrestle with and love and respect, who is contradictory and outdated, and also a holder of deep wisdom, story, and identity. What if? What is scripture to you? What significance does the Bible hold in your life? If you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you care a little bit, at least, or are willing to try to recontextualize this book that has that mighty legacy of violence and oppression in your own life in some way. For today, I invite you into this thought experiment with me. Let's imagine the text as an elder, sitting in a place of honor and comfort and deep knowing in our communities. Let's talk to it like a living, breathing, 
crotchety and irritating, deeply wise, and soft presence. I myself was raised with a strong value of respecting my elders. My mom's teaching style was always more of a showing rather than telling modality, so the things that she said to us explicitly in words I remember very clearly. In this family, we respect our elders, she say. My mom was raised in Hawaii with all her grandparents, great aunties and uncles, and aging older family around her. My elder family members lived out the end of their lives in living rooms and family dinner circles, closely tied to the daily goings-on of the whole family. They kept the stories of my family's migration to Hawaii in the early 20th century close. They sit in overstuffed armchairs, giving commentary on family business or drama. The rest of us splayed out across the floor and crowded into couches. This elder presence and type of elder care is many things. A privilege, a cultural given, a product of its time and place. In this context, complicated and varied as it was, my mother was raised under the feet of the story keepers of my family, the transmitters of identity, the ones whose very presences amongst us were reminders of who we were. Some people say that just because you're old doesn't mean you're an elder, but I think that's also a product of a dominant culture without an elder tradition. Since the role is not valued, our aging comrades do not see it as a thing to grow into. How might the older folks in our lives live differently if there was an expectation that they needed to be wisdom keepers for the generations below them? How would it be different to know they were desperately needed? Are there elders present in your life, either related to you by blood or by choice, or maybe even in the spiritual realm? Try to call their presences into your consciousness. Try to access all the feelings you have about them, holding them in their fullness and honoring them as complete human beings. And finally, try to see yourself through their eyes, these story keepers we struggle with, these wise and deeply broken beloveds. How do they see you? What do they want for you, for us, for the world? and solemn Ash Wednesday to one and all. I myself was raised in a highly liturgical tradition where Ash Wednesday and Lent were a big deal. I'd be pulled from school in the middle of the day to go and receive ashes, and the season of Lent was as sure a herald to the coming spring in Virginia as the dogwoods and the hydrangeas blooming. I was so formed by this tradition that my partner and I even chose today's annual Ash Wednesday reading from Isaiah 58 as one of our wedding readings, but more on this text later. Ash Wednesday, as a bit of background, marks the beginning of the penitent liturgical season of Lent. It's the day after Shrove Tuesday, a.k.a. Mardi Gras, a.k.a. Carnival. 
the great Christian festival day of feasting and revelry and tom holy foolery. And as we're nursing off our carnival-induced pancake supper stupor, a priest passes their thumb across our foreheads on this holiest of days, telling us, don't forget, human, you're going to die. But that doesn't mean that life is over. Depending on where you are in the world and who you hang around, you might see folks walking around with these ash crosses on their foreheads today. This practice has a long historical trajectory mostly related to the Catholic Church. Some would say it's pseudo-biblically based, in that throughout the Bible, references to donning sackcloth and ashes is a way people demonstrate penance, which is a central theme to Lent. There are also many who would argue that the practice is not biblical, and thus, in scare quotes, pagan or unchristian. Allow me to get up on the tiniest of soapboxes here for one moment and remind folks that while, obviously, I acknowledge the enormously oppressive presence that is the Catholic Church in the history of the world, oftentimes anti-Catholic practice sentiments are rooted in racism, xenophobia, and classism. And the Church, capital T, C, is different than the people in the pews. Okay, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Moving on. So today starts Lent, which brings us to the topics of the readings I want to focus on. Piety, how to do it and how not to, an argument that has persisted for millennia. For all of those of you following along in your Bibles at home, the first reading this week is Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 12. This section of the book of Isaiah comes from what scholars call Third Isaiah, the section of the book that is believed to have been composed after Jews returned to Jerusalem from being exiled in Babylon. Let's take a moment to try to imagine this historical moment. The Babylonian exile occurred in 586 BCE and is one of the most important and influential historical events that happens in the communal life of the composers of the Hebrew Bible. It's been mentioned in this podcast before, but bears repeating. This event was hugely traumatic, too, and hugely shaped the lives and theological underpinnings of the Jewish community at that time. They were violently dispossessed of their homeland, the place where they worshipped God, their way of life, and exiled into a land not their own. After spending about 70 years in exile, a time which also influenced much of the writing of the Hebrew Bible, they returned to Jerusalem and tried to begin again. This is the time period in which 3rd Isaiah was likely writing, this time of return. This longed-for thing has finally happened. They're finally back in the land God promised them and are rebuilding the temple under Persian sponsorship. But things are far from easy. Distrust in the community is present amongst those who were exiled and returned and those who remained in the land. Ethnic boundaries are blurrier than they once were. And people have a lot of thoughts and feelings about who should marry whom. Religious customs and roles and traditions all seem in flux. The quote, way we've always done it, is a myth. That cannot be returned to. And, as is the case with trauma, there's the ever-present threat of future violence and conquering, the ever-present questions in the aftermath of acute trauma. How do we prevent this from ever happening again? What did we do to deserve all this? Who are we now? Third Isaiah's prophetic voice seems to be one among many, debating and discussing these questions. How are we to be together? How are we to be as a people of God? What do we do in light of all of this? And what does God want for us to be in these times 
when the stakes are so high. These times in which we are tired and scared in the midst of trauma. And, unsurprisingly, many people had a lot of strongly worded opinions about the answers to all of those questions. Third Isaiah's hot take from our passage today begins with God speaking to the prophet. Shout out! Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. The people are seeking God. They want to know God's ways. They want to be near God. But they're not getting the affirmation that they want from God for these actions. The passage continues, Why do we fast, but you do not see, God? Why do we humble ourselves, but you do not notice? They complain. And God claps back at them. Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Is this such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? This is one of those special times in the Bible where it's extremely clear that biblical translators and writers were not afraid of giving God's voice a little attitude, a little sarcasm. In this series of rhetorical questions, 3rd Isaiah is letting the people know, hey, what y'all are doing, this is not the move. God offers a reframing of these practices of piety. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Now this is the rowdy, justice-dealing God voice we know and love of the prophets. The critique here is clear. Isaiah sees the people's religious piety as exhibited in fasting and penance as actions rooted in serving the self and not the community. How can you play at devotion to God when the rest of your behavior exhibits harm towards your community? True fasting, 3rd Isaiah tells the people, and true fulfillment of these practices of piety is to have them be a catalyst for justice and deeper solidarity with the oppressed. Now, I imagine this group of traumatized, exile survivors coming back into their land and trying to rebuild their lives with trepidation, but perhaps with the hope of a new beginning. And so I can hear the frustration in Isaiah's voice here. We have this chance to start over here, y'all. We have this chance to rebuild a new world in the shell of the old. And we're falling back on these same age-old oppressive behaviors. Our community just had an extremely horrific experience of being cast out. How can we continue to do that to one another? And the gospel passage today from Matthew 6 picks up on these themes in an even more explicitly instructive way. Jesus is teaching outright to his disciples. It's the passage that we get the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is literally teaching them how to pray, how to be pious, spiritual practices to sustain them in these similarly tumultuous, dangerous, and collectively traumatic times. The refrain throughout this passage in Matthew is, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't give alms and try to attract attention to yourself. Don't go out into the street shouting your prayers. Do your fasting in secret so that only God knows. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, verse 1 instructs us. 
for then you have no reward from your God in heaven. While Third Isaiah's critique of showy piety seems to be that the actions aren't grounded in justice, Matthew here is more worried about them being in public at all. Matthew encourages a secret piety, between God and you only. That's what God wants. So here we have two writers this week, Matthew and Third Isaiah, who are both Jews. They're both Jews, both Jews, let's remember that, and our side-by-side comparisons of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament, especially as we're going into Lent. This is not a Christian writer versus Jewish writer thing. They're Jews who were writing about 600 years apart, both writing in the context of conquest and empire, Third Isaiah being in the wake of Babylonian conquest and in the midst of Persian rule, and Matthew writing during the time of Roman occupation. And, importantly, Both are writing after extremely traumatic communal experiences happened to their communities. The Babylonian exile, as previously mentioned, and in Matthew's case, the total raising and destruction of the temple and Jerusalem itself by Rome. In both of these contexts, these writers are trying to tell a traumatized, demoralized, and terrified people how God wants them to act, how God wants them to to be practicing piety and practicing devotion to God. The spiritual stakes are extremely high. In these high stakes, Matthew's gospel is laced with anti-Pharisee sentiments. They're the foil to Jesus' do-goodery throughout the gospel of Matthew. As we talk about a lot in this podcast, this anti-Pharisaic stereotype has caused incredible, tangible harm to the Jewish community across the centuries, and it is irresponsible for us as Christians to continue to perpetuate it. Matthew's presentation of us versus them, the Jesus-following Jews who are righteous and good, versus them, the Pharisee Jews who are antiquated, stuck in their ways, and perpetrators of injustice, is a binary that's not nearly complicated enough. Just as good practice, at the start of Lent, I'm going to link Serge Faith's really, really helpful toolkit on combating anti-Jewishness and anti-Semitism in the transcript of this podcast. One of the links in that toolkit is a tweet thread by Michael Weiss in which he breaks down why conflating the Pharisees with hypocrites is not only anti-Semitic, but also historically a one-dimensional way of understanding Jewish midrash and theology at that time. He explains that in this tradition of Judaism, which is essentially rabbinic Judaism today, it doesn't matter if you're feeling it or not with regards to saying your prayers or doing justice. The point is just to do it. He writes, it doesn't matter whether you feed the hungry and house the homeless because you love the poor or because you want a tax deduction or because you want to be respected by others. What matters is that the poor are fed and housed. And further, he identifies that there is ample evidence of debate and struggle within the Pharisaic community about just the thing that Jesus is concerned with, these outward signs of piety getting too grandiose. So while to us in Matthew, we can read this chapter as if Jesus is dropping these truth bombs left and right and roasting these hypocritical Pharisees, any Pharisee reading it at the time would probably have been like, oh, yes, this is an issue we talk about all the time. Outward signs of piety. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Debate and struggle and conversation about the right way to do things, to do piety and devotion to God, was totally intrinsic to this community. So where does this bring us today? 
If you're going to go get ashes this Wednesday, I wonder why you're doing it. I wonder why I'm doing it, honestly. It's, for me, some combination of all these things. I do it because communal ritual feels like a lifeboat to me these days. Especially especially communal ritual that reminds me that one day my body will return to the earth. And that is simply the fullness of life. I do it because showing up to church feels similar to how I show up to my faith each day and each moment of each day. Sometimes it feels good just to show up, to put myself into the space where belief and hope for the world can exist, even if I don't have it within me. I open my Bible and say my prayers because it's a thing that I can do when it feels like there's nothing to do. I do it because it feels like accountability, a public declaration of struggling with this tradition and claiming my own work within it. Not, as Reverend Gaffney says, an acquiescence to it, but a commitment to grappling. And I do it because without actually doing the thing, without actually showing up to church on a Wednesday evening, or to a protest or a phone bank or to a conversation with a neighbor, I have no way of being in conversation with what's true. Without the praxis, the action and reflection cycle, I have no way of testing my inward hopes of reconciliation and grace and humility against the backdrop of the complicated world we live in. Today's complicated political arena and religious scene hold some of the same questions Isaiah and Matthew were facing. How are we to be a people of God in the world in a way that is right? I'd like us to return to the image of the text as elder. Instead of seeing it as a roadmap, which is of course impossible, because it's full of contradictions and silence on all manner of topics. We can see it, the text, as a wise old one who has lived through a lot, accumulated a lot of wisdom, holds harmful prejudices that were shaped by trauma and ignorance, but someone who is still very much alive, who wants to be in dialogue with us, who wants to help us in these troubled times someone who is deeply concerned for their family here on this planet, who we can grapple with, who (laughs) holds stories and points of view that make us get up and leave the dinner table on holiday dinners, but who we return to because we, we must, because it is who we are. of public and private actions of justice and piety probably resonate for many of us in the social media age we're living in, especially for people with proximity to privilege. For instance, when you donate to a rad black-led group or individual, do you post about it on social media? Is that just being braggadocious and trying to make yourself look woke and cool? Or is it the right thing to do because then that rad thing will get more visibility and actually you're using your influence and your social circle to move resources and help people grow and learn? Anybody ever had this thought train? I gotta think that I'm not alone out here. And I also have to tell you I don't know what's right in these situations. There's no roadmap, alas, telling us or anyone how to do it right. 
I doubt that Matthew ever imagined that a follower of Jesus today would be posting a photo of themselves and hashtagging Ash Wednesday so that their image could be seen by thousands of people across the globe. There is no perfect roadmap, but we do have a lot of tools. We have each other. We have this text that we keep choosing to struggle with. We have our prayer life, our intuitions, and ritual through which the wisdom of the Holy speaks. The spiritual stakes are very high today. We cannot wait until we get it right. We cannot wait until our roadmap is perfect to get out there and start trying to practice our devotion to our God of justice. But we can be in dialogue with all these tools we have, integrating them into our practice, being open and learning, and knowing when to stake our flag in the sand and protect what's right. If there's any roadmap that Matthew and Isaiah give us today, it's that actually it is this holy struggle that is biblical. If we really want to do what the Bible says, we should listen to the many claims on truth and how to be faithful and struggle with them together. Listen, learn, grow, try again, return to it like an elder. This week, I invite you into this holy praxis. Maybe you can journal about your values and the things that feel important in your life and then reflect throughout the day on how the spiritual practices that you do do line up with those values or maybe don't. Do they feel aligned? If not, how might you readjust? And consider your justice work. How does it feel to share it with others? How does it interact with or guide your spiritual practices? If you're feeling stuck, Rather than waiting on a roadmap, try something new and then just see how it feels. Consult one of the tools you have. Does it help you get unstuck? In the next 40 days, let's go together on this action and reflection journey. I'm with you. We are with you. God is with you. All of your tools and the elders are with you. And we're learning along the way. Thanks for listening along today, y'all. We'd love to hear from you on our SoundCloud or Facebook page. In just a few short days, my comrade Jean will be bringing some sweet words of encouragement and fire into your ears for the first Sunday in Lent, so listen up for that. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there, and if you have questions or need help with action ideas, Be sure to give this episode a like or rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available on our website, which includes any references, credits, and copyright info. Thanks this week to our sound editor, Matt. Until next time, y'all. Keep grounding. Keep resisting. Very grateful for you.